both of those, you can see where they come from, but both of them are, are really unhealthy. But the more I interrogated it, the more I looked at it and said, this was never about us. This was about a messed up colonial system that thought they got to say how other people's homes should be run and tried to make it your fault that you didn't meet their standards. You're listening to Scars We Share. I'm your host, Kayleen. I'm excited for you to listen to this episode. It's the first episode I've ever done with two guests. I spoke with O.E. Tierman. They're a writing duo and are simply wonderful. We talk a lot about mental health, among other things. Here they are. Hey, everybody. I'm E.S. Argentum. Um, Olivia and I write under the, or we co-write under the pen name O.E. Tierman. Uh, and I'm the E in that. Go figure. Uh, I write uh, on my own. I write queer fantasy romance. Uh, and together, Olivia and I write, what are, what are we calling it? Hopeful queer cyberpunk. That's what we finally decided it. on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm the O in O.E. Tierman. Um, under my own name, Olivia Wiley, I write... Um, illustrated nonfiction books on the intersection between plants and human folklore. It's called Ethnobotany. And then with ES, I work on the Aces High Jokers Wild series. And that's where I get to bring out all the sex drones rock and roll. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. I love this. And I love that you guys have such like, unique writing style, like not writing styles. Well, I guess you could kind of say that, but um, themes, like yeah. themes, like you guys each do something like kind of different on your own yeah, and then do something really unique and interesting together. Yeah, Olivia is very cool. the, the nonfiction science brain and I'm definitely the character emotion brain. Uh, and and it actually that's actually works. worked really well while we're writing together uh, yeah. once we got over the arguments. <laughs> yeah. It does work really well because ES foc- focuses us in the first draft to get the characterization down, to get the emotions down, to get all those really amazing scenes that play heart heartstrings like harp strings. Yeah. And then I come in on the second draft and I'm like, okay, so how do we how do we do that with tech? And my goal is to make sure that an expert in, say, hacking never throws one of our books against the wall going, that's not how it works. And then we just bounce it back and forth until it's got both solid science and solid characterization. Yeah, that is so cool. I'm actually, I think it's really cool that you have a team as well. So I actually have a degree in theater and one of my emphases was playwriting. And I love, I love playwriting. Like I've not done much with it since graduating years ago, (laughs) but I do like, I love playwriting. And one of the things that was really cool was one of my plays was able to go through this WGA class. It's like writers, dramaturgs or directors, actors. And so I had to come with a new, um, I had to come with a new draft every Wednesday because it was workshopped in my class on Wednesdays. And so every Wednesday for a semester, I had to bring a new draft to my class and they would read it and then we would, they'd give feedback. 
And it was so helpful having other people give mm-hmm. me feedback on it because it really did almost feel like a writing team. Like they helped me figure out where it needed to go. And then I did the actual writing part, but they had a huge impact on mm-hmm. what the final product was at the end of class. So I think it's actually really cool that you have a team because you can bring so much more in when it's multiple people working on something, especially because you guys focus on different things. So like, that's so cool. I love this. (laughs) Anyway, so let's go ahead and move to a physical scar. Do one of you specifically want to get started first with a physical scar? I, uh, I, yeah, I could take it. Um, I have two, one on either hand. They're probably too small to show on the camera, but both of them are the result of, yeah, that'll work. Five minutes later, no, it won't. And that is kind of the story of my learning process in life. Let's try it, Al. Um, one, I was 11 and I couldn't get a, butter, a peanut butter jar open. So I grabbed a butter knife to twist the plastic top off. Well, that plastic ring off the top is actually quite slick. So the knife went down through it and into the webbing of my thumb. And yeah, and um, I was a very scientific child at that age. And I have a condition called hyperinsulinia. So I don't react to pain the same way most people do. So I just stared at it. And there's always that moment of frozen time before a wound gets going. Um, when you're you're looking at it going, maybe it's not that bad. Oh, there's the blood. <laughs> and so I remember very clearly the moment of being able to see the layers of my own skin and going, oh, that's cool. Oh, oh, blood. Oh, shoot. And the same thing happened a few years later. Um, wood carving is one of my hobbies. And my mom had a rule. I was 15. My mom had a rule that she had to be home when I was wood carving. And that was fine. But one day I was very, very bored and mom was not home. So I got out my tools and I was carving on a piece of throwaway pine. Bad idea. It's very brittle. So I was carving the ear of a deer and I was going around the curve and the wood split and the knife went into the ball of my thumb on the other hand. And I tell this one because my brother came in panicked. And I was, um, part of hyperinsulinia is your reaction to a lot of stress is getting shaky. So I was shaking so bad that I couldn't get out of, I couldn't move. Um, so I was just walking my brother through, this is what you do. This is what you do. Okay. I'm good. You're fine. I'm fine. Except then I had a hand wrapped up in towels. So I tried to pretend that I needed to go to bed early that night so that my mom wouldn't see my wrapped up hand. That was that was quite an epic failure. Because <laughs> my mother is rather perceptive and I am not a great liar. So yes, my learning is written on my skin. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. And like imagining a little you trying to like hide your hand in a wad of towels like (laughs) and my brother did a very good job but I had a thumb the size of Milwaukee 
That is absolutely fantastic. And that's interesting. I've actually never heard of that. What what was it called before? The uh, hyperinsulinemia. It means your body makes about twice as much adrenaline and insulin as you ought to. So I I have a built-in check engine light. Instead of getting tired, I go and go and go until my hands start to shake or my speech starts to slur. And ES, who's been to a few conventions with me, will tell you it's um, it's disturbing to to others. <laughs> I, I have to convention mom her and make sure that she's eating enough protein and taking enough rests, because otherwise, by the end of the day, she's just incoherent and shaking. And it's like, OK, <laughs> yep. and can stop their cases. Yeah. <laughs> that is so crazy. Also, I kind of do love that you. That you said you have to convention mom her <laughs> because <laughs> I think that's so like how many times do we need someone else to do that for us? Yeah. Especially those of us who are taught to be independent. We get into this mindset of I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. We're not. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and I'm both a- of us sign up for a lot of things at conventions because we tend to vend <laughs> and then we're both on a lot of panels. And sometimes Liv has a habit of double booking herself. Yes. Which has been interesting. Um, so yeah, she she needs a con mom. Oh my gosh. I'm lucky though. I've ended up with a whole con family. And um, I, I'm going to make this point real quick. And then, yes, I want to hear your scar story. But we've been really lucky. Going back to what you were saying earlier about um, working in a group, we've ended up with a whole, I'd say, writing tribe. Um, because after we worked together, we handed over to three sets of readers, one set for um, just general beta reading, one set for sensitivity and cultural issues, and one set for expert issues or uh, technical issues. That's a better word. So we've been really lucky that we've ended up with this follower or this, excuse me, this following that always is there to root it root us on and then this tribe of other creatives who are like oh you're gonna give me another manuscript rip up awesome that's so cool I actually really like that like oh I just love that because it helps to make the writing that much better it really I is. honestly think that when you have other people being like oh have you thought about this have you thought about this and like not rewriting it for you by any means but giving you thoughts and ideas to allow you to really get it where it needs to go like I think that's so helpful and awesome well and the series deals with a lot of really sensitive issues um we've got a lot of mental health issues a lot of dealing around being transgender a lot of racial issues and we wanted to make sure that we're handling those in a sensitive and realistic way without um without resorting to stereotypes or relying only on our experiences for various things that we can't experience Mm -hmm. Uh, and so having that team to help us with that who are so so incredible with their time and their feedback and I mean we we definitely compensate them for it as well as you should but we also love them for it (laughs) so it's a good balance it's like you always pay people it's invaluable really yeah yeah, that's so neat. And I, I love that you actually do tackle the difficult things in writing, because I think that all of those things are extremely important. 
and need to be, they need to be in stories. They need to be written about, but sometimes people are a little standoffish because that's a difficult thing to write. It's not like writing about mental issues, uh, LGBTQ issues, uh, racial, like writing about those things is not easy, especially Mm -hmm. in the climate that we're in right now. Yeah. So I commend you for that. And I think it's really cool that you have people to give you more help with those things to make it as authentic as possible. I think that's awesome. Thanks. We appreciate that. And I want to comfort folks. It's not all like, it's not all about pain. Like one of the things I'm working on getting right right now, because the next manuscript is in my hands right now. One of our characters who started the series at 12 is now 17 and she's getting into how to style her hair. And so I am learning all of these different black hairstyles that can be done by one person or maybe two people. And Delikisha is a an on-point, amazing girl, but she likes to look good. And so I'm learning all these terminologies for a hairstyle that I don't have. So I'm checking in with friends and checking in with resources going, okay, I want to get this right because if I get it wrong, I will be very embarrassed and it could be harmful. <laughs> but it's, it's, sometimes it's about fun stuff. Sometimes it's like, how do we do hairstyles? And sometimes it's about, you know, what benefit, excuse me, what benefits are available to somebody who is neurodivergent? What differences could make them quicker to pick up on a problem? And sometimes it's just plain interesting to get out of your own experience and really understand someone else's. Yeah. Yeah, one, one of the really strong themes in the series is hope and found family. And so, yeah, we have these struggles, but it's always learning to reach out for help and learning to support each other and finding that community. Mm-hmm. And I think, at least for me, that's a really uplifting thread of it so it's not just we're focusing on oh depression is bad yes depression is bad but also if you have the right people around you and you can find your and create coping mechanisms then it you can get through it and you can handle it yeah and so one of the things we love researching is like so if you have a partner with this form of neurodivergence or this condition how do you support them and if you have a friend how do you authentically support someone who's going through something? Um, one of our characters is a trans guy who's dealing with a lot of anxiety, depression issues. And so his team learns how to really support him. And when he is supported, he is incredible at leadership. Okay, I'm just going to be really upfront right now. I apologize if I cry while you guys are talking about these things because, like, I'm I'm really emotional because I haven't gotten enough sleep lately. I feel that. But you guys are touching on so many things that are, like, very directly affecting me right now. So I apologize if I get really emotional while we're talking. Well, (laughs) if it's not too familiar, distance hugs. (laughs) Yes, I'm like, like, I love it so much, but just, like, my husband has very possibly ADHD and he has depression and anxiety. I have a son with ADHD. My other two children have sensory processing issues. Mm-hmm. And my niece recently came out to me as as 
lesbian and I was born and raised in a very religious mm. community that we actually like my husband and our family just left this past October oh. and my niece is with my most like religious pious oh. sister uh-huh. and it's been causing like a lot of drama uh-huh. <laughs> and issues for my niece and so like I'm she has me to talk to and my other sisters to talk to which is great so she like she has people who are like in her court but so I like as you're talking about all of these things I'm just like oh my gosh don't cry <laughs> like, it's okay. I but, just want to hug you that's what makes us human <laughs> but I seriously like that's what like seriously I love that this is what you guys are writing about I because it's needed and especially like this hope and mm-hmm. found family and Oh, like all of that is so beautiful to me because I've had to really distance myself from a lot of my blood family mm-hmm. because we can't connect anymore because we're not helpful to each other anymore. Yeah. And so we've had to rely so much on found family and the family mm-hmm. that we choose and make for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So like all of this, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I want to read all of your stuff now. <laughs> Well, and a lot of it comes from stuff that Liv and I have experienced as well. I mean, obviously, we can't speak to the reality of being a Black person in America. Yeah. And that yeah. nature. But the mental health issues, um, we both have various forms of anxiety. I have depression. Mm-hmm. I was just diagnosed this year with ADHD. And then the gender issues, Aiden, the trans character, who's the protagonist, um, is based very heavily in my own experiences except just more binary um and dealing with the dysphoria and the feeling of not fitting in and trying to find that community um while we were writing it was a lot of stuff that I was going through as well and so the writing kind of became both a catharsis and a roadmap and I hope like, one of my big hopes is that this series can help other people as well. Like, yeah. yeah. On, on the surface, it's also just a fun sci-fi read. Yeah. Where so. corporations um, get their butts handed to them. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I hope that underneath we can, we can help people find that hope and find yeah. the strength to keep going and to, you know work towards changing the world towards a better place well it, it, it's fun because when we're writing um each of us when we write the first draft each of us takes you were talking about writing being a playwright um it kind of feels like that because each of us set, takes a set of characters and each of us works out some of our own demons through our set of characters but yeah there's a lot of power in taking those things that have scarred you and putting them on the page and saying, hey, I know how this feels. And I might not know how you're going to get out of it, but here's one way to deal with it. And one of the other things we stress is a lot of these things you don't get quote unquote cured from. You learn how to cope and live a good life with this as part of who you are. And um, I'm speaking as somebody who has um, uh, I call it weird wiring. That's the easiest way to describe it. Um, a, a system that doesn't act like baseline normal. 
and I have my own sensory processing issues. And I have a lot of um, hidden disorders. Um, so hypersensitive hearing and a condition called Raynaud's, which is the body doesn't know the difference between cold and freezing to death. So it turns off your circulation, which is a great parlor trick. You grab no, a piece not. of ice, hold it, it in your hand. <laughs> and it goes white and it then purple. And then blue. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then your friends go, Gah! Um, I need you to keep your but, fingers. I know. You need them to write. <laughs> I know. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because, yeah, um, it's powerful to be able to share both those reactions that you're getting from the world and the reactions you have to yourself on the page. Um, so one of the other characters in the story is the, the logistics officer, Kevin. And I worked out a lot of my own internalized what is good enough through writing that character. Very much elite, but always very harshly judging himself never good enough. I mean, he speaks five languages and he's like, I've gotten rusty on my French. And everyone else is just like, dude, you are such a geek. But also some more unhealthy stuff. Like someone gets hurt on his team and it is his fault and he is going to fix it even if it kills him. And so the support he needed was somebody to grab him by the shoulders and say, do not kill yourself to fix your mistakes because we need you alive. I think that character is so relatable for so many people. Seriously, though. Like, oh my gosh. Seriously, I'm, I'm going to look like all of your guys' stuff up after this. Thank you. But I also, I like writing Kevin because um, as the story evolved, it was a way to showcase how, if you have privilege, how do you use it positively? And also, how can how can religion be a positive force in someone's life? Because we see so many examples of toxic religion. Well, Kevin is a Jesuit. His mother taught him the Jesuit faith, but he grew up in a corporation that is a medical corporation. They're basically eugenicists on steroids. They can edit your genome. So if you're not absolutely perfect, then something's wrong with you. And so his mother taught him this form of Catholicism, partly to say, look, everyone is sacred in the eyes of God. Everyone has a soul. And it was her way of teaching him not to look at other people as disposable parts to be thrown out if they're not perfect. Oh, this is seriously like so close. <laughs> <laughs> So close right now. Um, also, I have to say, yes, I saw the like signing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, and it made me so things, happy. One of the things um, when I was young that I really appreciate my parents doing was um, teaching me a little bit of sign. I like thank you. I love you. Oh my gosh, cat, you are loud. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. I love you. Uh, finger spelling, just kind of the basics, but it's, I don't know. It's just something that I've always appreciated and mm -hmm. something I, I took actually a semester of ASL in college just because I think it's something that more people should know, you know? Oh yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. I love that. I, 
we actually, um, I told you my, two of my children have sensory processing mm-hmm. issues. So my, my daughter's my middle, she's four now. She was delayed on her speech. Um, and a lot of it was due to those sensory processing mm-hmm. issues. Um, she's great now. <laughs> um, but now my youngest who just turned two is very delayed. Like he has very, very few words and they're not like for other people, they don't understand most of his words like Mm -hmm. duck most people can understand duck (laughs) that's one of his words but he has very very few words like he doesn't say mom or dad like he has very I think he might have like maybe five words and those Mm -hmm. are only words to us I actually think it's really cool because my oldest son who like he never had any delays he was always on the quicker end of things and he's like seriously insanely intelligent like he blows me away he doesn't need any of those things, but he still signs sometimes, especially to help my son. And I like it. I'm like, you know what? I love to, I would love to keep this going. So that way, if they ever encounter anyone who can only communicate through ASL, like how nice would it be for them to be able to actually still have some communication? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think it's important. It anyway. Is. And, and we don't, think about ASL the way we traditionally think about languages like in school you have French and Spanish and German and maybe Chinese or Latin but it's very very rare to find an ASL course and I think that that's a shame personally yeah it really is well yeah and I think it also it teaches us to be more flexible when we learn other ways to communicate because the more rigid you get the fewer ways to solve a problem you can find. So not only is it good for both people in the conversation in terms of human connection, but it's also good for people to be flexible in their way of of approaching others and have lots of options because that frees them up to stop constantly saying, well, you need to be normal. Well, what if normal doesn't work in this situation? And I mean, putting aside the problematic nature of normal, just on a on a purely um, problem-solving level, it's really good for kids and adults to learn your way of doing things is not the only way to do it. There are lots of ways to be a person in the world. And the more flexible you are in that, the more flexible you are in approaching life. And that's what makes you go, huh, I wonder if we could do this different and find better ways to do things often. Of course, sometimes you end up like me, where you're like, I wonder if we could, no, don't do it that way. But that's how you learn. Yes. Well, and I love that. Like, honestly, one of the things that I love that you were talking about uh, was you just do something and you learn from it. Because so much of the time, we don't want to just do it. Like, we keep ourselves back. We're like, oh, no, What, what if it doesn't go well? Or like you, there's so many things that like keep us from actually just trying something, but really it's when you actually try something that you learn. Like then, we, yeah. oh, I just love that. <laughs> this is where ES and I balance each other well, because ES is great at supporting me, but also like, honey, make sure you think that through. <laughs> but I have other friends who are trying to be supportive and they end up being like, well, be careful. Don't do it. Don't do this. And I, I end up shutting them down eventually. It's like, do either support me or get out of my way, one or the other. But 
yes, you're the one who's usually like, are we thinking this through carefully? And I so appreciate that. Have you thought about this, this, and this? (laughs) Yes, I have been known to walk into walls. Yeah. But now I'm going to pull you, what's your scar? She needs a con mom. Except she needs a life life con mom. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. Oh my gosh. This is why I hire, like, accountants for my business and check in with experts. I know that I walk into walls, so. (laughs) But we got off topic. Yes, did you want to talk about your scar? I know. I was like, let's move to your score. Your scar. (laughs) I I don't really have any sort of, like, fascinating physical scar, scar stories, but I have one that's relatively small and very faint um on my left forearm right next to my tattoo actually um that was from my cat um the cat who has been running around crazy this entire time we've been talking um he we brought him home this is probably i don't know two or three months since we brought him home but he's always been really skittish And so I uh, picked him up. My mom was here to come see him. I picked him up to try and, you know, have him say hi. I brought Uh him out to the living room and he freaked out (laughs) and jumped from my arms onto the cat tower and gashed my arm like super deep. Um. And so, yeah, that that scarred pretty nicely. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I I have more little scars from this cat than anything ever. <laughs> I, I don't blame him. He just never really learned how to not use his claws. Yeah. So it's it's not intentional. It's just they're very sharp. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. He's loaded. <laughs> I honestly think that there is so much, (laughs) there's a really good metaphor and like comparison in there. Um, When you're not given the tools to help you do the best you can in life, Mm -hmm. you often hurt people unintentionally. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, seriously, as you were telling this, I'm like, wow, this is, like, so perfect. <laughs> yeah, but, and true. as you guys, like, I just love that because you guys are talking about how, you know, you're, you don't cure depression. You don't yeah. cure things. They are things that are a part of you that you have to learn how to cope with. You have to get mm-hmm. tools in your toolbox yes. to help you live with them. And I think that what happens when people don't get those tools that they need is they don't know how to be them be- their best selves Agreed. and they inadvertently lash out and they hurt others. And it's really important to have to be patient and try to help them, mm-hmm. give them like help them with those tools, yes. but also at the same time, if they're not willing to work towards using those tools sometimes it means you need to put a boundary there 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's where the so found good. family comes from, I think. Anyway, yeah. there's just, there was so much that my mind went to when you were sharing that story yeah. about well, your cat. No, that's good. If, um, if it's okay with you folks, if I can riff on this, we have a character who basically showcases all of that. Um, oh. She's our technical officer. Well, she becomes an officer. Her name is, her, the name she goes by is Tweak. And she will never give anyone else, any, anyone, any other name no matter how many times they ask. But she, in the first book, actually a lot of readers said how annoying she was and she broke someone's nose because they scared her. And she starts out as this little monster whose response to everybody is, fuck you. I mean, her response to everything. And what you just described is the process that we write for bringing in this genius coder who is also a really wounded person and a bit of a loose cannon disaster at first. And she's a scared kid hiding behind combat boots and a switchblade, basically. And exactly what you just described is exactly how Aiden and the rest of the crew bring her around, which is, okay, you want to get better. We can help you with that. You can't break anyone's nose. And we need to put ways in for you to not feel so freaked out that that happens again. But we are here for you. And we loved writing that because it was so different from the experiences we've often had. Where, I mean, in school, you get in a fight, they suspend you. And I'm really excited to see more restorative programs coming in where they sit people down and get them to talk to each other, as opposed to punitive programs where it's just your problem, you're out. And what we showcase is a lot of the wins later in the series are because Tweak comes on board, starts to treat the unit as her family, and the more she cares about them, the harder she works. And she really is a genius. Like scary good at her work so because tweak is supported her abilities become a huge asset in the fight to bring democracy back to the united states because our story is set in a in 2155 and you've got seven corporations owning all of the united states and everyone living in it and our story revolves around one unit in the resistance group fighting to bring democracy back. And so when Tweak is supported, she becomes one of the best coders the force has. And she can take down corporate tricks like anything. Um, But first she had to feel safe and like people cared about her. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Seriously. Yes, it seemed like you you had something... Oh, yeah, I wanted to go back to the the thought about not being able to cure neurodivergency uh, and bring that kind of back around to an internal scar of mine. Yes. Um, Because I only really recognized my neurodivergencies in the last couple of years. And looking back, like, I can see how they affected me growing up and things of that nature. Um, I just didn't realize it at the time. And that's been something that I've really struggled to come to terms with 
is ac- accepting the fact that my brain is wired with these things in it. And that doesn't mean I'm broken. And it, and there's this stigma, especially around mental health, that there is a cure and you will eventually get better if you take your medicine and go to therapy. And stepping away from that and realizing that that's not what's going to happen took a while. And every now and then that, that kind of scar still kind of opens up for lack of a better term when I go, well, why can't I just be normal? Why can't I just get better? And um, so I think it is important that we acknowledge that and realize that it is okay to not be okay in, in more than just saying the words and, and finding that community in which we can be not okay. Or our own definition of okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love that so much. It's okay to not be okay. Like I, I really go by that a lot. Sometimes it's like, it's okay if you're not okay. Like I, this is the thing I'm struggling right. to accept. <laughs> oh, well, cause how I like, it's so hard to actually do that. It Especially because we're the hardest on ourselves. Like I'm so much of the time we would never give ourselves the same like, we would give other people a very specific, like, oh, no, this is totally fine. Like, grieve. Let yourself, like, be upset about this. And yeah, we would we never give that. We would never let ourselves do it. And it's like, come on. Yeah. Well, and and to go back to the line of your show, I mean, one of my internalized scars is exactly that. I I take care of my friends and I make sure my friends are doing well. But to myself, I basically say what I grew up hearing, which was, Fuck up. We don't have time for this. We both I would knew that. Never, ever say that to a friend. Never. But I do it to myself all the time, up to and including, come on, you can work harder than that. When I'm starting to shake and it took me into adulthood to say, if I don't stop working now, I won't be able to work tomorrow physically. So, time to rest. Mm-hmm. And teaching myself to redefine what is efficient, because it's much more efficient to rest today a little bit and be able to work tomorrow than to work myself to the bone today, which is my instinct. But yeah, so many of us were scarred by our culture that if you are not constantly doing something, if you are not constantly creating a profit or a product, then there's something wrong with you. And that rest is a reward. Rest is a necessity. Like this idea you can work yourself to the bone so that you can retire. No. (laughs) It's so easy to internalize those messages when you're young and to not realize that that's what's happening until you hit like we're in our thirties now and we're finally recognizing this and starting on that work. Yes. Um, and that's just sad. <laughs> it really is. And, and for me, it, it's definitely been an intergenerational thing um, because my folks came up through a lot of poverty and a lot of um, various forms of discrimination. And I learned this really intense work ethic of 
You just have to be that much better than the other guy, that much tougher, that much hungrier for want of a better term, that much more of a go-getter. And you have to be that much more learned and your articulation has to be perfect so that they can't assume that you're an idiot. Um, my mom raised my brother and I as a single parent and um, she still afforded sending us to elocution lessons, which is why I sound a little bit odd. Um, she sent us to elocution lessons so that we would lo lose our original accent, which is upper Wisconsin, because she wanted us to be taken seriously wherever we went. However, that's an intense scar of you have the weight of your entire lineage on you. So, and we need to be better than we were. So you better get to work. It's like, I, I both hate and appreciate what they taught me because I don't think I would be as where I am in life if I hadn't had that go-getter spirit. But it needs to let up sometimes. Yes. <laughs> like on a Sunday when I've slept in for two hours, it needs to not be saying, well, you could have been up writing. Like, Shut up. Mm -hmm. Seriously, like I connect with this so much. So I was raised with like, honestly, a ridiculous work ethic. Like I was also, I was raised in a farming community, mm. which like... <laughs> Me too. Drives that home. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it like Farmers really drives that. I guess. So for like, I lived on my, I lived with my aunt and uncle, like my family lived with my aunt and uncle while my dad built our house that I grew up in. We lived there for a year and they have a horse ranch. So like hauling hay, moving pipe, working mm -hmm. horses, like I was raised with a ridiculous work ethic and my husband has called me out on it. He's like, you don't need to keep doing things. And yes. I'm, it's so hard. I'm like, oh, but there's still stuff yeah. to be done. He's like, but you need to rest. And I'm like, but he's my like, husband has no. to call me on the same yeah. thing. And, and one of the things I have as is my mother's anxiety about us not being seen as dirty people or us not be, being seen as various slurs that I'm not going to repeat, but basically that we are upstanding, clean, educated people. So my mom is, I love her to death, but she's disturbing in her level of cleanliness. Like her house is a museum and every Saturday is washing day and cleaning day. And we can't do things on Saturday because that is cleaning day. And this woman used to work 60 hours a week and then come home and say, okay, I'm done being lazy on Saturday morning and start cleaning the whole house. And my husband will call me on it. We'll be like, I'll say, because I'll list my intentions out loud. Uh, we learned this as a relationship thing because I would start to work on things and he would say, what are you doing? And I have some scars around not meeting other people's expectations. So I would get anxious. Like, what did I do wrong? You're like, nothing. I just want to know what you're doing. So I learned to just tell him, this is what I'm doing today. When he'd hear this list of chores, he's like, you know, I don't think the bathrooms need scrubbing. You know, I think you can probably, you worked, you planted three gardens last week. Uh, my, my trade is as a landscaper. I think maybe you don't need to scrub the fridge. I'd be like, well, it needs to be done. 
it's like, does it need to be done this weekend? <laughs> yeah. And there are times when I go over to their house and Liv is just like, excuse the mess, excuse the mess. And in my opinion, the place is like freaking spotless. <laughs> I do that to everyone. I'm like, sorry about the mess. Everyone else is like, what? What mess? Yeah. You have not seen my depression mess. I seriously, like, I connect so much on... So my husband, I mentioned, we're like 99% sure that he has ADHD. He like, his mom even noticed it when he was younger because his mom has a degree in elementary education. And so she even noticed it when he was younger and asked about it to have him tested. And his teacher at the time did not understand it fully and was like, no, if anything, he focuses too much on things sometimes. Mm -hmm. Hyper And it's like, oh, like now it's like, uh-huh. <laughs> but so he's never been, yeah. But we were pretty, like, we're 99% sure he has it, and my son has it, so we're like, yeah. But his executive dysfunction makes it so that he has so much that he wants to get done, but he can't, he can't prioritize it. He can't figure out what to do, so he just doesn't do it. That's and so, <laughs> and so, like, I have to, I end up doing a lot of the cleaning because I'm like, well, but this needs to be done. And I can focus in, I can be like, well, this needs to be done and this needs to be done and this needs to be done. So I get done working a full day because I'm actually the breadwinner. So I work full time and my husband's the stay at home dad. Right. And so I will get done with my day and I work from home. So I'll get done working my full time shift and I'll be like, well, the dishes need to be done. And so I'll go straight out and I'll start working on the dishes. And like, I'll take time to like play with the kids and like help the kids and whatnot. But when I'm done with work, I'm like, go, go, go. And he's like, it's okay. That yeah. doesn't need to be done right now. And so like, it's just so interesting because in our relationship, we have this like executive dysfunction thing going on. Mm -hmm. And then this, I can't stop until things are done thing. And so we have had to have so many like, <laughs> come to Jesus moments. <laughs> I, I hear you. And I sometimes use that phrase with my husband and my husband's a neurological researcher. And so he will actually call me out. He'll be like, I mean, he'll straight call me out. He'll be like, so I see you're hyper-focusing right now. How was your day? <laughs> and like, um, and it, now I've learned to not just get defensive. Now I've learned to be like, how was my day? Exhausting. What am I doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's a disturbing element of treating rest as a reward and our culture does that to us a lot and we got to get past it but I really am I'm trying to like ES was saying we're in our 30s doing this work I really tried to interrogate where did my mom get that from and the more I got into it I finally got my mom and my grandma and my great aunt sat down and I was like why do we need to have a perfectly clean house and my great aunt said, well, it's because the Bureau of Indian Affairs used to send people into great grandma's house, my grandmother, my great grandma. And if the house wasn't perfectly clean, they would make all of these comments about dirty natives and dirty immigrants because my family is Irish and Menominee. 
and we come from a reservation town. And they would like shame my great grandma and her sisters in their own homes. And so uh, you can see how that coping mechanism evolved. Like I can see how it could evolve one of two ways. It could evolve like my own grandma, which is people have to take me as they are as I am, and I'm not cleaning anything, which isn't great, but it can also evolve like her sisters and my mom, which is fine. You set the standard, I will meet it. And I am better than all of you and I will prove it. And both of those, you can see where they come from, but both of them are really unhealthy. But the more I interrogated it, the more I looked at it and said, this was never about us. This was about a messed up colonial system that thought they got to say how other people's homes should be run and tried to make it your fault that you didn't meet their standards. And that is all kinds of messed up. I think a lot of internal traumas come from that. It's less about us as individuals and more about how society treats and sees us as individuals. Um, I recently started reading The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. I want to read that. Um, I'm only like a chapter and a half in and my mind is already freaking blown. And like, I'm already feeling a lot of things coming up. Um, But she talks about like the historical body oppression that comes from, well, you don't fit this exact mold and how that can really affect people with neurodivergencies and people who don't fit the thin model and people with different colored skin and people who came from different cultures, uh, disabled people, anyone who doesn't fit like that. I hate to say it, this is gonna sound awful, but it's also kind of true, that like fit strapping Aryan ideal that we have. I call it the wasp. Yeah, I call it the wasp baseline. Yeah. Like you want to be the waspy baseline and no we don't. <laughs> yeah. Um and I, I think that that's a lot of trauma scars that everybody has to dig into at some point. Yeah. Um yeah. in order to really figure out who they are and where they fit and what they want to do with their lives outside of what society tells you you should be or should be doing and I don't really have much advice for it yet because I've only just started but I think that it's an important journey and if anyone else has advice please send it to me (laughs) I will offer this bit of advice sometimes it's helpful to pull out that streak of defiance that we all have in us to varying degrees um when I am able to do it, um, mental health being what it is, I don't always pull it off. But when I'm able to do it, I picture some of those more negative thoughts about things like, have I cleaned the house lately? As a, an inspector lady in one of those Victorian bonnet dresses. And I can look her in the eye and say, screw off get out of my house. You don't belong here. This is my home. Um, Because other people's standards, 
beyond, okay, I'll give the caveat, beyond basic health and safety. Other people's standards don't need to be yours. So I find anthropomorphizing some of my thoughts really helps. So like, you know, this house is a mess. I picture that as like some inspector lady who shamed my great grandma. And I look her in the eye and tell her to screw off. <laughs> I love this so much. Sorry. No, I guess we'll just so, have to come back. Like, I love this. It's Seriously. Something my, it's something my therapist, um, um, my therapist taught me um, parts work, like picture your different parts of yourself as um, figures, as beings in their own right. Mm-hmm. Freaked me out a little bit at first because I was like, is that like schizophrenic? And she was like, no, no, this is, this is work. And just, just ride with it. And now that I've ridden with it for a bit, I'm like, actually, yeah, this works. Cause if I can, mm-hmm. I think in pictures. So if I can imagine something, it stops being, I want to be careful about my wording here. My brain is saying it stops being my thought it stops being an internal voice that is driving my actions and becomes something I can objectively look at and say, all right, I see your point. We need cleanliness or no, you're full of crap. And I've worked two 18 hour days in a row. Shut up. Yes. I, uh, I'm so bummed that we need to end soon, but I, <laughs> I wanted to say this. Like, it's fine. I know. We're just going to do it again. So like something that has really helped me. um, So I mentioned I was raised in a religious community because not like I grew up in a farming community and within that farming community, basically everyone was LDS Mm. or Mormon. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Um, It's, it's very strict. Yeah. Um, like it has taken me a very long time to actually like come to this decision, but I legitimately think it's kind of cult ish. People who study cults agree. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I so am- something that like has been helping me because I've been struggling for a while now. And then it was just last October. So not even a full year. We officially decided to leave the church and like, we're in the process of like, withdrawing our membership and everything. And so um, something that I have really had to work on to help me overcome all of these societal pressures that are like even more intense within the LDS community. Um, I've had to be like, but, but what matters to me? Yeah. Like what, what's important to me? Who am I? What do I think? Because especially being grown at, being raised in this church, you're told what to think. You're mm-hmm. told what to feel. You're told what to do. You're told what to wear. Like you are basically given everything that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to college and then you're, and you're supposed to marry for women. Like you're supposed to go to college. You're supposed to marry a returned missionary as soon as you can. And then you're supposed to start having babies as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. And I'm you're supposed to be a stay at home mom. No, <laughs> it's just, no, but like, <laughs> it's so intense. Like it is very, like you are given basically what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so I had to be like, well, but what do I think? Yeah. And it, that, that was, was so like hard. this huge shift. It was like, well, I don't know what I think. 
because I've never had to think before. Right. And I think that that is where so much starts mm-hmm. with like overcoming all these societal pressures is, well, but what do I think? And what do I feel? And what do I want? And that is where so much of it all starts. Yes. Because even on a like bigger basis than that, we are told what to think and what to feel mm-hmm. and what to do. Like we, we, especially as like, I don't know, just that's what you're, that's just what we're taught. Mm-hmm. And it's when you can switch it and say, well, no, wait a second. I don't have to do that. I don't have to think yes. that. Mm-hmm. I think that's the baseline where so much healing oh. and power and everything comes from is figuring out what you want. Yeah. Agreed. Um, yes. And I both read Brene Brown's work and she calls it standing in your sacred ground. <laughs> my queen. I love her. Awesome. I love her audiobooks. I'm, I'm, I love listening to things. I know we're running short on time. So oh, while we're talking about solutions, um, if you'll excuse one more short plug, I want to offer to listeners um, in the back of all of the Aces High Jokers Wild books, yes. And I collect a series of resources that are relevant to the issues in each book. So in the fourth book, there's stuff about plants. So there's stuff about how to start a community garden, but there's also stuff about LGBT health and mental health. And the whole point is when you get to the end of our books, we want you to turn that last page and be thinking, oh, this is so close to me. This is what I'm going through. And immediately, bang, you're looking at resources. Here's where you go in our real world for this, for that, for the other thing. And we want that to be right in people's grasp so that they can use it immediately. Because our one of our, a pet peeve that we share is go get help is the Google it of mental health and even less useful than Google it. Like go get help is patting you on the head, handing you a cookie and sending you away it's worse than useless. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to say to go get help to someone, offer them resources. Yes. 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 Oh, okay. We need to end, but this is serious. Like this has been absolutely lovely. Seriously. This has been so good before we end. I would love for you to tell listeners like, what are the titles of your books? Like, are there, or are there too many to really go into? Like, where can they find your stuff? Because I think that this is important and yeah. I want people to go look, read. Yeah, uh, it's the Aces High Joker's Wild series. Uh, there are currently five out right now. Um, the first one is called, God, I always get the first title wrong. Why do I get the first <laughs> title wrong? Uh, the Hands Were Given is the first one. Um, and hey. you can find find them all on uh, OE Tierman, T-E-A-R-M-A-N-N.com. Uh, we've got links to all the indie bookshops that carry it as well as the big box stores. Um, we like to ask people to go indie if you can, but also understand that's not always an option. Um, you can yeah, also find links to, to both of our individual work there. Um, and all the other things you should need, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And all the resources from all the backs of all the books are on the website. Um, so you can go direct to those links. Um, you'll also find our books on our publisher's website. So 
go to amphibianpress.com. And let's see. Oh, um, we're also on Facebook and we have a newsletter where if you are interested in reading, you can get free, they're called advanced reader copies, ARCs of the books. And it's basically, hey, read it for free and then leave a review because the reviews help us go up in the algorithms. Yeah. I don't love playing these games, but it's what we got to do. But you get a free um, book for a review. Like, I, that's a pretty exactly. Review. Right. I'll barter. Yeah, we'll barter. Um, and we have um, the first three books are out in audiobook if you're an audiophile like me. Um, so they're up on Audible. Just type in O.E. Tierman, T-E-A-R-M-A-N-N, or type in Aces High, Joker's Wild, and they should pop up. Awesome. Okay, seriously, this was wonderful. I I seriously loved talking with you. This was just, I needed this this morning. Well, Yay. I guess afternoon, really. <laughs> Whatever time it is. Yeah. Thank you so much fun, for having us on. Yeah. And I look forward to hearing more about your journey. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a preview from next week. Weren't they just lovely? Make sure you're taking time to focus on yourself. What brings you joy? Figure that out and do it. Make it a point to do something that brings you joy. You can find links to O.E. Tierman at the show notes page at scarswishare.com slash podcast slash episode 093. Within two years of getting together, he died of cancer. So, um, so it was the biggest love of my life and the biggest loss of my life. And it all rolled into one. (laughs) 